0: Before medicine begins, right now, I'm Dr. Bruce Crawford, board-certified gynecologist and your host today. We're here today with Tom Lavin. We are very grateful to have him here today, and I'm just wondering, do you or a loved one suffer with anxiety? If so, today's podcast may offer hope and help to you and your loved ones. We'll look at the symptoms of anxiety, when anxiety is healthy, and when it's dysfunctional. Maladaptive coping mechanisms will be examined, and using the key principles of acceptance and commitment therapy to live flourishing and meaningful lives. Our guest today is psychotherapist Tom Lavin. Tom has been helping people lead more flourishing and meaningful lives for over 40 years, Tom is a clinical faculty member at the University of Nevada School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science. Tom's Live Better Psychoeducation Series classes and his television interviews have been viewed by over 300,000 people on YouTube. Tom, thank you for generously allowing us to speak to you today. I know I'm going to learn a ton, and I know our listeners are going to learn a ton. So
1: welcome. Yeah, Bruce. Bruce, it's great to be with you. Looking forward to it today. You know,
0: Tom, I, I'm struck by this topic today and how relevant it is. I know from my own clinical practice and my own personal experience how prevalent anxiety can be, but I'm also aware that anxiety in itself isn't, an, isn't abnormal, as a medical student at NYU on my psychiatry rotation, I was convinced I had every psychopathology that got presented to us. And now that's not <laughs> just me, that's yeah. not uncommon. That's called med student syndrome. Because yeah. there is an element in every psychopathology that exists in the quote unquote normal human being and it's the imbalance or dysregulation or exaggeration of that particular human feature that becomes pathological. Do you think that applies to anxiety?
1: Oh yeah. That, that's a great way to start. Um, that when we take a look at our lives, our family, our friends, um, we, we just see that anxiety is part of life. It's, it's actually part of human evolution. Anxiety uh, has allowed us to evolve and survive by being anxious about getting food and having a safe place to live like a ca- like a cave or some type of shelter, uh, some anxiety about protecting the people in our tribe uh, and and developing tools and fire. Th- these are things that anxiety um, has helped us to survive and flourish actually. And also, so in our modern daily life, Bruce, when we think about it, it would be natural if our children or grandchildren are coming home from school with a poor report card, we would have some anxiety and that would prompt us into action Mm. to see what can I do here to help my child or my grandchild in school? Or if. All of a sudden, we say, Holy mackerel, I was supposed to pay the mortgage or the rent or the car payment last week. We would feel a rush of anxiety and we would get on that and handle that right then. Mm. And the same thing is true with driving. If we're driving down the road and someone is driving erratically, we would feel anxious and we would either slow down or speed up or get into another lane to avoid that dangerous situation. So anxiety is actually very healthy. We want to be able to sit with it and be with it and listen to it. And it can help save our lives and help us flourish, actually. Hmm. However, we we can sometimes cross a line where we become overly anxious. Our, Our trigger point for anxiety becomes too low and we're triggered into anxiety. We begin to perseverate. Um, we begin to worry. We're living too much time in the future, worrying about this or planning about this, trying to avoid this or control this. That's where anxiety really becomes a problem. Very simply, um, in, in in psychology, we would say that anxiety becomes a problem when it interferes with our daily functioning. So instead of helping us function uh, in a better way, anxiety is actually a dysfunction and it's interfering in one or more aspects of our lives, Bruce.
0: It sounds like it's not an absolute amount of anxiety, but more a compatibility between the complexity and stresses of our lives and our ability to cope with those. Would you say that that's yeah. true?
1: Yeah, well, well put, Bruce, and, and and also another way that I would compliment what you just said is, we, you know, as we experience anxiety, we would say it can become a problem based on intensity, frequency, and duration. Uh, am I, am I frequently anxious? Is it high intensity? And is it lasting for a long time? Instead, instead of like anxiety going back to baseline, it just continues at a high level of intensity. Then it begins to interrupt our daily life. And um, and so we begin then from a diathesis stress model, that anxiety then begins to affect our physical, mental, emotional, existential, and social lives.
0: So, okay, that, that's an interesting clinical description, but I'm in the audience now. How do I know yeah. if my anxiety is problematic?
1: Great question. Okay. Well, if if my anxiety is keeping me from asking somebody out on a date, or if my anxiety is keeping me from having an important conversation with my spouse or with my partner, Mm -hmm. if my anxiety is keeping me from going to PTA meetings, if my anxiety is keeping me awake at night and I can't fall asleep, or I'm waking up in the middle of the night, if my anxiety is so strong that I'm getting into maladaptive coping, of oversleeping, or abusing alcohol or marijuana, or opiates, mm. or even workaholism. The, the, that which we call maladaptive coping mechanisms. Um, we can, if anxiety is paralyzing us and keeping us from getting into action and doing those things in our life that we need to do. Another key thing that we would take a look at is am I being overly controlling to the extent again that I'm paralyzed or I'm trying so hard to control my own thoughts and feelings that I'm starting to break down or I'm over focused on controlling my spouse or my kids or my employees or my friends. Trying to control this behavior or that behavior, what they say or what they don't say, where we go or where we don't go. These are the kinds of things that interrupt our daily life. And that's when anxiety is a problem, Bruce.
0: That is so interesting to me, especially what you said about the overlap between anxiety and addiction. And, mm, and mm-hmm. you know, we mentioned in the introduction we were going to talk about some maladaptive coping strategies. You know, before uh-huh. people bring themselves to a doctor with a medical problem, they often yeah. have tried a few things on their own. And yes. we all have witnessed and are aware, and, and I dare say everyone of us knows someone with an addiction problem of some kind. That might be drugs, it might be alcohol, it might be gambling, it might be sex, it might be shopping might be food. Yes. So what percentage of the addicted population, which is enormous, do you think yeah. has an underlying untreated anxiety disorder?
1: Um, I believe the research would show, we would call that a comorbid condition, right? Where there's an addiction to alcohol or drugs. Um, and about 80% have a co-occurring disorder. Now, some of that might be, Schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, or depression. But a high percentage of people, uh, probably, you know, a high percentage of people will have an anxiety disorder and maybe comorbid anxiety and depression because right. people with anxiety and depression, it's usually about 70% where people have both. So anxiety, depression, and addiction, there's a high level of comor- comorbidity where all three are actually occurring. In the person
0: and in you know in in addicts that I've talked to, they'll often say, especially opiate addicts, that this is the only time I feel okay, yeah, yeah, and to me, that just shouts there is an underlying level of anxiety that makes life chronically consistently, unbearably uncomfortable, so their 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 mindset is anything but sober, anything but this oh
1: yeah, oh, yeah. You know the, the the term itself, anxiety, comes from a Greek word that means "I can't breathe, I can't breathe," oh, and so there is this panic when when anxiety comes up. Mm. And and by by the way, Bruce, while we're talking about co-occurring disorders with addiction and anxiety, I also want to throw in the mix there, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And so, you know, when And I started working with chemically dependent people in 1973 on Skid Row in Detroit. Oh, my. And at that time, we just treated alcohol and drugs straight on. It wasn't until the late 70s, early 80s, we started taking a look at co-occurring disorders. And I know now looking back, there are so many people that we treated for straight alcohol and drug. And such a high percentage had anxiety, a high percentage had anxiety's sister and that's post traumatic stress disorder and and these this anxiety or post traumatic stress or depression started when these people were children or adolescents and for most of them it was in adolescence that they first started having their first drink or their first drug and they felt relief they got oh my god this is what it's like to feel normal i need to do this again and i need to do more of this
0: Right, right. And
1: so they they begin to drink and use drugs and it makes the PTSD or the anxiety depression go away for a little while. But then, of course, what happens is it really makes it worse over the course of time. So like you were saying, Bruce, the the co-occurrence and the same thing again happens with people who get into other maladaptive coping behaviors like gambling or compulsive eating, where the gambling or the eating what we might call comfort foods or self-soothing, all of these addictive disorders in terms of anxiety and PTSD are self-soothing. They, Like you were saying earlier, Bruce, they soothe that mental and emotional distress and make it go away for a little bit. And so when someone stops drinking or using or eating or gambling, um, then what so many people are left with is the underlying anxiety or PTSD or depression that they've had since they were children or adolescents. And that's where we step in and begin to treat both of the things together. That and is one other thing, Bruce. Please do. In my experience, you know, we're very concerned in addiction treatment about relapse. And in my experience, and the research will bear this out too, when we see people relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. Sometimes people in recovery programs will say, you need to make more meetings or you need to work the steps. And, and sometimes that's very true. But sometimes what's happened is someone has an underlying disorder, bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, PTSD, that's not being treated. And so when life stresses occur and the anxiety, depression, Uh, are triggered and exacerbated, and the person has no skills to deal with that, they return to alcohol or drugs or food or gambling because that's all they know how to do. And so a big part of relapse prevention is helping the person develop skills to deal with anxiety and depression and the other things that I mentioned.
0: So there, it it is possible, then, for the addict to become comfortable while sober is what you're saying. Oh,
1: definitely. You know like like you know the the promises in the big book. And Bill Wilson himself the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous sought uh, psychotherapy and psychiatric treatment to help him with his depression and and so the other stresses that he developed when both of his parents abandoned him as a child. And so along with Bill having had a spiritual awakening and founding AA and using the 12 steps he himself avoided him, uh, uh, availed himself of uh, psychotherapy and psychiatric treatment.
0: Mm. So there, there is hope. Where does that hope begin? If you have an anxiety disorder with or without a uh, superimposed addiction, where, where, does, where does the path to recovery yes. begin?
1: Great question. So, so, you know, Bruce, it's natural because when we're having, we're feeling the anxiety coming on. And we have an aversion to that. We go, oh, my God, I'm feeling anxious. I I hate this. I don't like feeling anxious. I really don't like this. I need to do something to make this go away. There's a cliche that we have in treatment, and that is the more you don't want it, the more you have it. Mm. And so paradoxically, what we teach our patients to do when they're starting to feel anxious and they're feeling that aversion and they want to get into avoidance or control to make the anxiety go away, instead of getting into avoidance or control, we ask people to take a couple of breaths and say to themselves, the anxiety is coming on. I don't like the way this feels, but I can accept that. I can accept that I'm feeling anxious right now. And paradoxically then, Bruce, the more we accept our anxiety in the moment it takes the air out of the balloon and the anxiety begins to diminish paradoxically by accepting it rather than fighting it it's very similar like in my office i'll ask my patients to i'm showing these to you bruce right now to put on these finger traps and all of us know from grade school on the playground somebody gave us finger traps and they said try to get out of these and we pulled against them and pulled against them. And the more we pulled against them the more we trapped ourselves. And we learned if I stop fighting this, I can free myself up from the finger trap. And so I'll use this as a metaphor to teach my patients, don't fight your anxiety, accept it. And the more we're like it's called embracing the dragon. The more I accept the anxiety, the more it begins to diminish.
0: So it's almost the fear of anxiety is what perpetuates the anxiety.
1: Very good. So I talk with people about the two cycles of anxiety. So the first cycle is when we feel the anxiety coming in, coming on like muscle tightness, rapid breathing, uh, maybe having a headache, feeling a desire to flee or to sleep. So that's a cycle of anxiety which feels very uncomfortable and we want to make it go away, but that we can deal with that cycle, Bruce. It's the second cycle that gets us. And the second cycle is feeling anxious about being anxious. Right. Yes. And it's the second cycle that gets us. And so that's why the main intervention then for dealing with anxiety is not to start with the first cycle of anxiety, but the second one And we deal with the second one about being anxious about being anxious is through, first of all, by accepting it. I don't like the way this feels. I'm a sensitive person. I realize I have a tendency toward feeling anxious. It's okay. Let me go ahead and accept this anxiety. It's going to last for a while, and then it's going to diminish. It's going to go away, like we will sometimes say, Bruce, this too will pass. Mm. Let me just hang in here with this anxiety, don't do anything stupid, don't do anything to try to make it go away, and it'll pass in its own time over the course of minutes or hours or sometimes a day. And then let me think about what's really important in my life, and let me divert my attention from trying to fight this anxiety to doing something that's meaningful in my life. Like, well, is there a chore that I need to do, like the dishes or the laundry? Is there a person I can help? Let me go help them. Is there something that I enjoy, like listening to music or being out in nature? To go ahead and get engaged with life. And as we're engaged with life, Bruce, the anxiety begins to diminish into the background. And the less we feed it, like the more we feed a tiger, the more it's going to come back. So we want to look at anxiety like a tiger and say, I'm not going to beat it by avoiding it. I'm going to not pay attention to it. Eventually the intensity, frequency and duration begins to diminish over time and it loses its power over us.
0: That's fascinating to me. So we have cycle one that sounds like a physiologic process that unfortunately for some people is is so uncomfortable that they develop cycle two, which is a psychological process and a uh, a fearful experience about the physio- their own physiology that for whatever reason portends to high anxiety and the discomfort that comes along with fight or yes. flight. And, and interrupting the connection between those two cycles, saying I can't change the physiological cycle just the way my brain is, but you know what I can change is the psychological response to cycle one that, that is directing it.
1: Yeah, that's beautifully put, Bruce. Exactly. And so what you just described so well, uh, capturing what I had described at length, (laughs) is we want to learn to respond to our anxiety rather than react. Ah. So you just described that so well. And again, to go back to the physiology, which you know so much better than me, but there are certain triggers for all of us that prompt us to feel anxious. And it's really an unconscious thing. The hypothalamus, the pituitary, the adrenals, and the amygdala automatically start spitting out these chemicals of fight or flight, which is where we get avoidance or control, which you were describing as the physiological response. Then there's a the psychological response, which you so well described, mm. and that's where we intervene on that by accepting it rather than trying to control it or avoid it.
0: And so medication prescribed by a psychiatrist, say, would be more directed towards the physiologic abnormality, whereas the therapies uh, recommended by a therapist would address the psychological response. Yes, that's correct. Very well put. That is so interesting. Yes. So so interesting. And so since we're with a therapist, um, and, and we've talked a little bit about the acceptance step of how we approach this, what what comes after that? You, I mean, I so, assume we don't just sit there accepting it indefinitely. There must be something. Yes, that's there.
1: right. Yes. Yeah, so so we accept this, and then the next part of that, acceptance, choose and commit, and then take action. So the C is choose and commit. So we think about, okay, I'm having anxiety right now. I can allow it to paralyze me, or I can do maladaptive coping in terms of reacting but if I'm going to respond, the C part is choosing and committing to values, like what's something I can do that nurtures and enhances my life? And it's an important value in my life, like helping other people. So let me forget about myself for a minute and do something to help a coworker, help my wife or my children, help a neighbor uh, to get outside of myself by self-transcendence. Another thing we can do is in terms of choosing values is what else can I do to nurture my spirit? Again, like listening to music, going out to nature, spending time with people that I love or care about. And the third thing is attitudinal values. And that is I accept that this anxiety is very disturbing and is painful to me right now. Let me accept it and choose it with dignity and grace. And again, let me turn out to the world and get engaged with life, like going for a walk, going for a hike, going swimming, going bicycling, helping someone, that's the taking action part. So accepting, choosing and committing values, and then taking action on those. And that's easier said than done, because um, as we know, Bruce, Anxiety can be very paralyzing. And that's where I talk with my patients about Nike therapy. And Nike therapy is about just do it. So in choosing and committing, we know what the right thing or healthy thing to do is. And then there's a gap about taking action because we can still be paralyzed. And so I will share with my patients, do Nike therapy, take the action. In other words, do it even though I don't feel like it. Now, a lot of times when we have anxiety, we've said, oh, when when my anxiety goes down, then I'll do it. And I share with people that's exactly wrong. The, the, The real deal is I'll do it, and then my anxiety diminishes. So we have to act in the face of anxiety. And as we act in the face of anxiety, over time, our anxiety diminishes. And we've got a life because we've acted.
0: That is interesting. You know, for diabetic patients, especially diabetic patients on insulin, there is uh, from time to time an occasion when one's blood sugar gets too low. Yes. And the diabetic learns to recognize that physiologic event. And you know what? It feels like anxiety for a lot of diabetics that Uh are hypoglycemic. Uh And it feels other other ways as well. But they have learned, because their life depends on it, to recognize the physiology in their own body. And then once recognized, they know exactly what to do. If their blood sugar is too low, they might need to have a, a spoon of peanut butter or they might need to you know, do something to just in the immediate term get through this yes. episode. And yeah. it, so it seems like this is a teachable thing. This is not rocket science. One, yes. recognize your anxiety, accept that you have a problem. And yes. then two, when that happens, this is what you're going to do.
1: Yes. Right? And, yes, exactly.
0: And 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 so I think the process of linking those recognitions and actions is where you come in, teaching people how to do
1: yeah. that. Yeah, and you know, actually, you know, as you're describing uh, the diabetes, it reminds me of the work that Dean Ornish has done with people with cardiology problems. And you know, for years, Bruce he tried to he talked with his patients about stop smoking. Exercise and eat a healthy diet. And one of the things he saw so many non compliant patients, and he goes, Why are my patients being so non compliant? And he realized that people need to have a sense of meaning and purpose. In other words, why would I do this? Why do I want to stop smoking? Why do I want to exercise and eat a healthy, eat a healthy diet? Well, I have to have a sense of meaning and purpose like I wanna be here for my grandchildren. I wanna be here to walk my daughter down the aisle when she gets married. I, so people began to identify a sense of meaning and purpose and then they became more compliant with the recommendations Dr. Ornish was suggesting to his cardiology patients. And the same, I do the same thing with my patients. We start off with dealing with anxiety is not about symptom management. Or reducing the symptoms, we start off with what does a meaningful, purposeful, flourishing life look like to you? And they this is I call this the bluebird of happiness if they look at my lectures on YouTube. In terms of the bluebird of happiness, what would that kind of life look like for you? And they'll describe, you know, physically, socially, educationally, career-wise. Uh, all kinds of multi-dimensionally, we spend time looking at what would a flourishing, wonderful life look like for you? I refer to this as vision, decision, action. What's the vision you have for your life that will motivate you to make the changes that you want to make so you can have that life? I call this answering two questions. What kind of person do I aspire to be What kind of life do I aspire to live? That's the vision. The next part is decision. Decision comes from a Greek word that means to cut in half, which means there's no going back. So I work with people to decide that's what I really want. Then the action part is let's develop a plan and a strategy to take action to create that life for yourself. And so that's always the motivating factor then, that vision, of the kind of life I want. You know, um, uh, that vision then motivates people even when they don't feel like doing it. I don't want to do it or, you know, or they're ambivalent. I help them remember, remember when we talked about this and this is what you really want? Can you go ahead and do Nike therapy even though you don't feel like it and do the next right thing knowing that decisions you're making today are creating your future.
0: From a practical so, standpoint, how do you help people make that connection at, the, at that essential moment when they're in it now and they're either going to do something proactive that's constructive or they're going to do something proactive that's maladaptive. How do you help them in, for those few seconds or minutes when they have to make a choice, remember those critical elements of their fulfilled, ideal bluebird life?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. And so one of the skills that's really important that we've become much more aware of um, in the last 25 or 30 years is what typically now in our society is called mindfulness, And so one of the things that a lot of us uh, 21st century psychotherapists are doing now, we are spending time uh, teaching our patients how to be mindful. And this doesn't mean you have to go to Tibet. You don't have to be a yogi. You don't have to do this 10 hours a day. It could be five or 10 minutes a day, learning to stop, learning to take some breaths, closing our eyes, having some private time, setting your iPhone for 5 or 10 minutes, stopping, following our breath, noticing our thoughts, letting our thoughts go, coming back to our breath, and then doing that for 5 or 10 minutes, Bruce, our patients begin to develop an awareness of different thoughts and feelings that are beginning to emerge. It's kind of like instead of dealing with the avalanche on Mount Rose when it's down on the highway, dealing with the little snowball at the top of Mount Rose that could become an avalanche. So beginning, because we're being mindful, and like you talked about the um, diabetes patients, right, with insulin, they, they, they become aware of certain physiological signals that tells them they need to take action we develop that same kind of thing with our patients with mindfulness, beginning to recognize anxiety or depression or, or, tra- or traumatic reaction when it's that small little snowball. Like in the Tao Te Ching, Bruce, it says, deal with something when it's small rather than waiting until it gets big. So mindfulness allows us, like the alcoholic that's developing a craving to drink or use drugs or the person that has a problem with gambling or food, They begin to notice the beginning of that craving or that trigger. And they can begin because they're mindful, they can begin to notice it and let it go rather than dealing with this avalanche of thoughts and feelings at the bottom of Mount Rose.
0: That is fascinating. And so
1: mindfulness is the tool that our patients use to be able to have a certain freedom because we're free when it's a little snowball at the top of the mountain. We're not so free when the avalanche is going down the hill, and, and that, we're being driven by our cravings so that little that awareness Bruce allows us to respond rather than react I see,
0: and you know mindful meditation, I think, is of good benefit to everybody, whether you have an anxiety disorder or any other disorder, becoming more mindful and 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 allowing yourself. To experience that and with that comes the ability to behave in a more disciplined way and to actually yes. behave in a more goal-directed way is, is, yes. is very good. Tom, this has been such an interesting interview and it's so perfect for Life Before Medicine. You know, we try and provide people with an off-ramp before they get to the need for medical intervention. And your schema of two different cycles, one physiologic, one psychologic, and there's an opportunity to intervene at either cycle, but one could begin with the psychological component of it using this paradigm of act that begins with acceptance, right, and then choose and commit and then taking action um and so i just think that's a great starting point for our listeners that want to learn more from you that want to hear more from you how can they get a hold of you what what can they do to follow your work
1: oh okay thanks thanks for asking bruce um well uh for one one thing they could go to my website at easeap.com that's e a s e a p where there are several of my newsletters, um, my television shows that I did for over 20 years. And then also there's a link to the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science that goes to all the lectures and television shows that are on YouTube. Um, So EASEAP.com is a good way to connect with these resources if people are interested.
0: Outstanding.
1: Also, if I could mention, too, you'll find worksheets that that accompany all the different lectures. Uh, So people can not only watch the lecture, but there are also worksheets that accompany the lectures, Bruce.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Maybe we can put those in the show notes below so people could have direct access to them. I think. Oh, great. That'd
1: be wonderful, Bruce. That would be wonderful.
0: Tom, I am so grateful. And I know our audience is grateful, too. This has been Life Before Medicine. I'm Dr. Bruce Crawford. We'll be back with more episodes giving you opportunity to avoid the need for medical intervention. We want to hear from you. If there are topics that you're interested in that we have not yet covered, even if we have covered them, let us know. We'll stay in touch. You stay in touch, too. Thanks very much.